Welcome to Interdependent Study, our podcast where we engage in the learning and unlearning work for social justice and collective liberation. I'm Damien. And I'm Aaron. Thank you so much for joining us today. For those new to our podcast, Interdependent Study is meant to be a space and community for folks who believe in and want to do the work of social justice. Each week, we'll bring something new to the table, discuss our thoughts and feelings about it through the lenses of who we are and where we can go for a more just society. We want Interdependent Study to be a space where we're always learning with one another. Mm -hmm. And Aaron, my friend, you're up this week. Yeah. What have you brought to the table today? Um, I'm bringing a couple of articles about the Stop Cop City movement in Atlanta. Yeah. Uh, So the first was written by Micah Herskind, uh, published by Prism. It's called The Fight to Stop Cop City Has Decades Old Roots. And so that article explores some of the history of exploitation, gentrification, and increased policing in Atlanta in the lead up to the 1996 Olympic Games and makes the connections between that movement work and the work by the forest defenders currently. Yes. Uh, and the second one is written by David Peisner. Uh, it's published by the Bitter Southerner back in December 2022, and it's called The Forest for the Trees. Uh, and this article dives into the history of the use of the land uh, from the 60s and 70s, I think, when it was called the Atlanta Prison Farm, right. or when that's what it was known as, yep. uh, and then explores a variety of perspectives in Atlanta about the quote, public safety training center uh, from the forest defenders to the local council members to some local residents uh, and explain some of the processes that have led folks in Atlanta to this moment, including diving into like the city owning this parcel of land, yes. but the parcel of land actually existing in unincorporated DeKalb County, right. uh, which is neighboring to Atlanta city limits. Um, so who gets to weigh in on those decisions is is weird. Yeah, murky, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, and it so all of that, right? And that's a longer piece. It goes into a lot of different kinds of things. Yes. I thought it was really a great article um, Very to good. read through. Yeah. Um, but one thing I want to mention about it before we get into these is that that article in the Bitter, Bitter Southerner interviews several forest defenders, as I mentioned, but it also interviewed Tortuguita, uh, who was killed by police on January 18th in a raid that became increasingly common at the turn of this year after the article came out. Right. Um, and then there was a another article published in the Bitter Southerner called Little Turtle's War um, that was published on January 20th, right after he was murdered, yep. um, where the author sort of reflects on how he got to know them uh, and and some of the, the ways that um, the author learned from them. Right. Um, so... What stuck out to you from these two pieces? Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that and sort of the update as to where we are and sort of the work um, uh, that is being waged against these um, forest defenders, um, mm-hmm. right? And the the um, it's a shame. It really is. Um, but, you know, I, I'm really glad you found these pieces. I think they were really great. Um, and I think sort of working in tandem, they paint a really great picture of what's going on in Atlanta with this stop city cop, stop cop city movement mm-hmm. um, and sort of the myriad of reasons why this movement is so important. And and also the the connected issues surrounding the movement, right? And yeah. so um, I, I very much so enjoyed reading these pieces, getting to dive into and, and learn more about what's going on here because it was something that I was sort of vaguely familiar with in the ether, right? And what was happening on social media, but yeah. 
Um, this really um, gave me a good glimpse into what's going on. So I'm glad we get to sort of amplify that here on our podcast. Uh, you know, the, the the one of the biggest things that stood out to me is one of the most baffling issues at play here for me is the fact that this training facility um, that the Atlanta Police Department wants to build is going to cost $90 million, mm-hmm. right? And and a third of that money, I can't remember which piece said this, but a third of the money is going to be coming from taxpayers, yep. which, you know, is just wild, right? It's a wild price tag for something that we know isn't in the best interest of the people of Atlanta, or in the best interest of what true public safety is and should be. Yeah, um, it's a it's a wild price tag for something that was opened to public comment by the city council, right, and received an overwhelming majority of comments that were opposed to the construction of this training facility. Yeah, they had to do two days of comments because it took seventeen yes. hours of comments. Right. Uh, most of which were negative. Most of which were negative, right? And so despite that, right, it can it continues to sort of push forward and mm-hmm. and and it has the backing of the Atlanta Police Foundation. And we have talked about the power of police foundations yeah. here before. So um not surprised there. But you know, I ultimately think it's wild that cities like Atlanta, where there has been and continues to be police brutality and violence. Um, murders by the police against marginalized communities, that cities like Atlanta continue to push for more investment in the police as opposed to what this city, all of our cities, all of us really need, right? Mm -hmm. I think sort of as I read these pieces and processed that, to me it's really just sort of shameful and reckless and and scary, um, especially given what it means for the the residents of Atlanta, but certainly what precedent this could set, um, you know, and what it could mean for cities across our country. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think one of the, th- you mentioned the Atlanta police foundation. Yeah. Um, and the major donors for the Atlanta police foundation are, um, you know, huge corporations that are huge. in, in it. I think uh, headquartered in Atlanta, yeah. like the Cox uh, family, um, the media, Cox media. Um, there's, I think um, Coke, Coca-Cola's mm-hmm. is, is a major donor and some, some other big names too. Um, but the, the thing that I think both articles pointed out uh, is that the Atlanta um, newspaper is owned by Cox Media and yes. is has overwhelmingly been publishing sort of positive positive pieces, uh, pieces yep. about the this plan um, without disclosing that right like the ownership connection to the plan absolutely uh, as a as a, a board member I think right. on the Atlanta Police Foundation yeah so talk about a conflict um, of interest there yeah and and not reporting it uh, not being transparent about it uh, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Uh (laughs) Uh, That's a good word for it. Yeah. So uh, one of the things I wanted to talk about is the environmental impacts of this proposed training facility. Um, And so I have a couple quotes. Uh, The first one's from the prison prism article, Uh, not prison prism Uh, quote. The city is leasing 85 acres of the Weelani forest land originally stolen from the Muscogee Creek people to the Atlanta police foundation for cop city. But it is located in a majority black area of DeKalb County outside of city limits, resulting in significant disenfranchisement of its residents who have few easily accessible official channels to register their dissent. 
While Cop City would impact everyone in Atlanta and across the country, it will have especially disastrous ramifications for nearby residents Mm. who will lose the benefit of the forest's flood prevention and cooling impacts. Indeed, this is land that the city referred to in 2017 as one of the, quote, four lungs of Atlanta and slated for incorporation into a broader set of parkland. A promise the city broke just four years later. Yeah. So there's this environmental impact of what happens when green space is developed and the long-term impact of removing trees on the air. And then there is more based on the history of the use of this land from when it was known as the Atlanta prison farm. It was a prison farm, right? So there's a story in the Bitter Southerner article um, about Leroy Horton, uh, who was arrested for public drunkenness and sentenced to 20 days at the prison farm. So not a huge just not a days, huge but, crime but not a huge it. issue yeah um not a big sentence uh he then got lice uh and was told to shower and given a shampoo uh and then he was told to disinfect his clothes with a chemical called sulfotep uh, that ended up killing him yeah uh, because he had sprayed it he had it sprayed directly onto his bare back by another person who was also serving a sentence um locally uh, in the in the prison farm. Uh, and this brings me to, to the next possible environmental impact. The buried contamination, which would likely be uncovered by the development of Cop City. Yes. Um, and so here's a quote from the Bitter Southerner article. One of the chemicals that hasn't been investigated is the sulfotep that killed Leroy Horton. The EPA classifies it as an environmental hazard. The National Center for Biotechnology Information warns do not let this chemical enter the environment and recommends that anyone undertaking cleanup wear, quote, protective, uh, complete protective clothing, including a self-contained breathing apparatus. So we have multiple environmental impacts here. One that's longer term and maybe harder to measure is the removal of trees right. um, as one of the four lungs of Atlanta. But then also, what does it mean to churn up earth and then in these two nearby rivers of this forest land have this chemical um, that killed a man um, just leaked out into the environment? What's the bigger environmental impact on the ecosystem there, too? Absolutely. So there's yeah. all of these different things that I think are, are – um, and as the article said um, – they haven't studied for how much of yeah. that chemical is present in that soil. Well, there's so much about that that was fascinating to me, too. I was really amazed to learn about the environmental impacts of the potential construction of this facility. Yeah. Um, you know, I think both pieces do a great job. The Bitter Southerner piece really was so detailed and thorough in sort of examining and, and explaining the impact of, like you talked about, the loss of trees in that area and what mm-hmm. that means for the city, what that means for the residents in that area, you know, these, this increased temperatures, um, the flooding you talked about, um, the chemicals that are there, right. Um, the pollution of waterways, like, I mean, there's so much that, um, this facility would do to that area that is, um, sort of unconscionable really. Um, and it sounds like the developers of the training facility haven't really done their full due diligence, right? right. And, and studies to sort of research and understand the full impact of the construction of this facility and what that would be, right? And so I think all of that is just, you know, and and certainly um, that story of Leroy Horton just kind of broke my heart. Um, and I can't imagine that that 
you know, we want people around sort of that chemical hazard, um, right. And that to be released into the, into the, into the environment. And so, you know, I think all of that is just another truly shameful aspect of all of this. Mm -hmm. Right. And the fact that this planning, this police training facility represents both, I think a commitment to state sanctioned violence and to the degradation of our planet, mm-hmm. right, yeah. is, is real, right, and, 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 and exacerbates what is a very real climate crisis for us. And so mm-hmm. um, it's just uh, all of that stood out to me, too, as just another reason in the long list of reasons why this facility is not needed. Yeah, yeah, because it's, I mean, it's, I forget all the numbers, but it's a big chunk of land, um, this forest, and the this training facility would take, I think, 90 acres. And so it would leave a whole lot of, of more forested area. Um, but the impact on that is so big yes. that I don't know, like the, the, it doesn't, it doesn't weigh out, like it doesn't make sense right. once you weigh all that out. Absolutely. So, um, yeah, I, I, one, that's one of the things that really stuck out to me as a reason to oppose this aside from, the other things yeah that, right like do we need do they need sort of a um a, a fake city to practice urban warfare tactics in uh, no yeah. probably not right um right yeah and you're right maybe that's a way in for folks like maybe if you can't you know if you have this um vision for and you can see how or you believe that the police need a facility like this to do training right if you're not there yet where we are as it relates to abolition right like Mm -hmm. thinking about the environmental impacts of this like i mean that that alone to me is warranting not doing this for sure absolutely absolutely Uh, so then the next part uh that i wanted to talk about was um connecting back to our discussion of direct action and legal strategy and the way they have to go hand in hand. Oh, cool. Uh, okay. From a few weeks back in the Hammer and Hope, yes. Hope article that we talked about. Um, and so this comes from a, a quotation from Tortuga, Tortugita uh, in the Bitter Southerner article. They said, it's incredibly important to continue having popular support. Cop City is incredibly pop- unpopular already. We're very popular. We're cool. <laughs> they laughed as they said that last bit. But without a doubt, the movement has succeeded in painting the forest defenders as a scrappy, idealistic David battling a heartless, moneyed Goliath. Mm. We get a lot of support from people who live here, and that's important because we win through nonviolence. We're not going to beat them at violence, but we can beat them in public opinion, in the courts even. Yes. Uh, and I truly believe we've got to understand how to support these movements from the outside uh, when we can't be on the ground you know, whether we're because we can't be on the ground because we're not in Georgia, we're not in Atlanta. Right. Um, but these folks in particular are creating their own conditions for liberation. Yes. Um, they're operating outside of norms of land ownership and and, and renting uh, and looking out for one another. And they're they're in connection with our discussion about our anarchism last week. Yeah. They're working together autonomously without hierarchy. Yeah, I love that. Uh, yeah. And so they're finding ways to practice community together by hosting readings and dinners and concerts in the forest uh, and looking out for one another. And I think there's a lot of beauty in the way that they're doing that. Um, that part of all of this is is really amazing. Yeah, I part of that is 
getting to what I um, am bringing to the table as application. So I'm not going to say too much there, but I, I loved reading more about the forest defenders and, and sort of how they structured themselves, what they believe in sort of holding fast and true to that. Um, yeah. and, and the ways in which, as you talk about that, they take care of each other um, and they stay committed to this work. And in a lot of ways, you know, they're also putting themselves in harm's way, oh, yeah. right? Um, and so they take that very seriously. I mean, everyone that got interviewed for this piece, they they use pseudonyms, right? Uh -huh. um, there weren't any photos. There were there lots were. of really great photos. Yes, in the in piece. the piece, but no photos of people's faces. Exactly right. And even I think was it the concert that they hosted mm -hmm. that you know community members came to, but a lot of the the actual forest defenders didn't come to because they were worried about being in people's photos, mm -hmm. uh, right. And having their face out there. So, right. There's an element of, you know, really important um, thinking and strategizing that they've done to take care of each other and take care of themselves. Uh, but the way in which they are in community together and working together is, as you say, it's really, it's really beautiful. So yeah. um, I'm glad you brought that up. I've got more about that coming soon. Mm -hmm. Um, the, the other thing I want to talk to you about, and I don't know that I have a fully formed thought here with this, is um, I struggled a little bit um, when I was reading both of these pieces, um, and especially with the prism piece, and there was a piece that the prism piece linked to, mm -hmm. um, and it was the talks around the support for this training facility, right, yeah. that came in during that very long city council meeting that we talked about earlier, um, and I guess... I just wanted to name my struggle with that here. Um, the the PRISM article and the piece that it linked to pointed out how support for the police training facility came from residents of a largely white and wealthy neighboring community in Atlanta. Yeah. It also came from firefighters and it also came from police officers. Um, and and that support and those folks used and, and propagandized the need for the training facility to help police deal with, you know, the quote unquote rise in crime. I think they said uptick in crime, you know, and prioritize their feelings of safety over the overwhelming destruction that ultimately I think would mm -hmm. come from this facility. Right. And, and, you know, it just really didn't sit well with me. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. um, like this, this disconnect that exists in our lived experiences and our ability to try to understand and find ways that actually protect and serve the true humanity of all of us. Yeah. Um, that disconnect was just a bit hard to sort of sit with and, and understand that folks would go out of their way and, and present those arguments and not really think about, you know, the humanity of folks in the situation and what it really means, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think that there's so much about, um, not understanding the long-term ramifications of something mm -hmm. and seeing mm -hmm. the short-term. Um, and I don't know, not, um, it's so, it's so prevalent. Uh, our thinking around safety is so prevalent, like it's so, so interconnected with police yes. and having a, you know, strong police system and there's ties to imperialism there. We're like in the whole, um, you know, U.S., uh, frame of mind of speaking softly and carrying a big stick and yep. having a, um, you know, the, the largest military budget in the world mm. by like several factors, um, of funding, like all of these things are kind of interconnected as we think about the physical safety of people. Um, and it's, it's hard to parse all of that out. And so 
and, and it's not surprising to me that people show up and support stuff like yeah. this because they're like, well, they got to be trained. Um, but I remember one of the things in uh, one of the one of the people in the Bitter Southerner article talking about how this could be a uh, an effective response to police violence is mm. a training facility where they get to do more training. And I was it's like, like, but no. the, I don't know that that's like those things aren't connected. Like this training facility mostly seems to be focused on like driving like a driving facility um uh um gun range yes. and um like this this fake city where they're going to be able to practice none of that is going to help people de-escalate the, help situation. police de-escalate a situation absolutely i'm not i'm not sure that connecting those dots to police violence in atlanta uh, to to this being a necessary response to that makes any sense it to doesn't. me. It doesn't. It yeah. doesn't at all. Absolutely. Thanks for that uh, sort of more fully formed yeah. thought and and contribution to you know my struggle there. I yeah. Well, that, I think you know? it, like it's so I don't know. It's so ingrained. It's so hard to yeah. parse out that that stuff of what safety actually means, what that actually looks like for most of us. Yes. Right? Which is why we talk about it a lot. Um, and the police and how intertwined the thinking of those two things are for us collectively. Right. Um, 100%. Yeah. All right. Well, this feels like a good spot to shift and talk about application. All right. How does this conversation, how do these articles apply to our day-to-day lives? Um, my application for this week is a quote from an anonymous forest defender um, that's in the Bitter Southerner article. Okay. They say, quote, the intersection between the climate crisis, growing inequality, and the militarization of cops is emblematic here but it's a problem everywhere. This is exactly right. Mm -hmm. Um, We continue to to allow the so-called free market to develop and develop and develop and develop. And that has an environmental impact that we don't measure, we don't consider. Right. So whether it's tree removal and the impact of our air quality or unearthing toxic chemicals that have been buried for decades, um, you know, those are all issues. And then that development requires militarized cops to protect the value and investment of the wealthy wealthy folks who pushed for that development in the first place. Mm. So they take their wealth and invest in cops through police foundations, which expand surveillance. And this is a cycle that just repeats itself and and keeps going. And so uh, one of the things that the PRISM article talked about is the connection, uh, as I said earlier, is the connection between the response to the 1996 Mm -hmm. um, or the Olympic Games and the lead up to the Games in 96 um, and the ways that forced kind of development and gentrification of two specific areas in Atlanta that were then used for the Games pushed out black residents. and pushed out sort of working class communities mm-hmm. uh, and the connection to that now today um, and the ways that police get used uh, as tools to make that development yes. happen. Right. And so that's where my application comes in is that this is a cycle that's happening in a lot of places yes. in the United States, in a lot of places in the world. Uh, and so we have to understand how that process works to be able to do anything about it and to say anything about it and to try to stop it. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting to consider the ways in which the police are used as this force, um, and, um, enforcer of this vicious cycle. Right. Uh Um, and the sort of interconnectedness of, like you say, the climate and the quote said the climate crisis and Mm -hmm. inequality, um, is is wild it really yeah. is right and so to me it's another reason why 
you know, I, I appreciate the work that they're doing to try to, the movement work that's happening, try to stop this, right? And mm -hmm. because if this is allowed to happen in Atlanta, I'm worried that it'll be, you know, easier to be done and replicated in other places. Oh yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Um, that's some good application. I um, alluded to this earlier. I was thinking about application and thinking about um, the work of the forest defenders actually. And I mm -hmm. couldn't help but be a little bit hopeful and thinking about movements and organizing work and, and the work that they are doing with the Stop Cop City movement. I think it's incredible what they have done. Um, what the folks who are part of this movement have done and, and thinking about what it is that they've sacrificed, right? And some, mm -hmm. some of them have sacrificed their lives as you talked about, right? Um, and so this quote at the end of the prison piece stood out to me and really sort of summed up my thinking about the application from these pieces. It said this quote, while Atlanta's posture towards it, its most vulnerable has held steady for decades, the Stop Cop City movement is here to stay. The movement has the potential not just to stop the destruction of the forest and the construction of a deadly police playground, but also to begin reversing the transformation that has for so long held our community's ransom. When we fight, we win. Mm -hmm. Right. And and that's that's the hope that I want to hold on to and use in sort of our continued work here, our conversations here, and you know, our continued fight against all these things in our society that are actively you know, at conflict with our, our collective humanity. Yeah. 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 That's good stuff. I think that, that sort of overall process or, or posture of like, how do we, how do we collectively engage with and fight for this? Even when we're not on the ground. Yes. It's um, important. important. Absolutely. Um, all right. So how about homework? How about it? Um, what are we going to continue to learn about? How, what are we doing to continue to learn about this after our conversation today? Um, so there's a, a toolkit um, that was produced by Southern Crossroads mm. called Mourn and Organize. Uh, it was written in the wake of uh, Tortugita's murder mm. uh, and gives some additional context for uh, what the plans for Cop City are, uh, connects uh, makes some connections between Atlanta and small towns across the South and, and why those things are uh, why standing up to Cop City in Atlanta um, ultimately is helpful to small towns across the South. Yeah. Uh, and includes a connection uh, to the murder of Tyree Nichols in Memphis to wow. stop Cop City. Okay. As well in that, that um, this movement to what happened there. Uh, so there's political and popular education happening uh, in, in this document and a script to use to call or email uh, folks uh, and a list of folks who you can contact who are involved in this project in one way or another in yes. terms of pushing it forward. So it's a way to um, try to interrupt it or, or slow it down from, from continuing to happen. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. I hadn't heard of that one. My, my homework uh, is similar in the sense that um, I totally forgot that you had sent me this, a copy of the stop cop city action guide mm -hmm. um, that our friends over at surge produced. Right. Um, and so I wanted to sort of check that out um, and really dive into it. And sort of similarly, I think it's a, it's a great way to learn more about the movement to stop the creation of this training facility, but also how to get involved in the movement and the work, how, how you can sort of donate money where you can donate money to support the movement. Um, and so it's just, it seems to be a really incredible resource to learn more about what's going on here. So um, I definitely want to check out that toolkit and certainly uh, Southern Crosswords uh, toolkit as well. Um, mm -hmm. If you want to find um, the surge toolkit, you can just Google search stop cop 
city toolkit. And it's literally the first thing that pops up. Um, and it's not terribly long, uh, but it has got some incredible resources in it. So, um, um, I got some good homework for this weekend, some toolkits yeah. to check out. I love Definitely. it. Very good. Yeah, good stuff. All right. Uh, well, Damien, you're up next time. What yeah. are you bringing to the table in our next episode? I am. All right. So for next week, I'm going to bring a couple of articles to the table for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and many thanks to you, my friend, for suggesting that we talk about this because um, yeah. it's timely and important. Both of these articles that I found focused on focus on uh, the recent anti-trans legislation that's currently being discussed and passed in places like Florida and Tennessee, you know, and certainly the potential impact this legislation in these places could and will have on other states and on our country as a whole. Um, though I, right before we started recording, I saw a notification, an alert. Um, I don't remember who it was from, maybe HuffPost, that uh, Kentucky's governor just vetoed some anti-trans legislation there. So um, we might mm. bring that into the conversation too. That's good news, right? But there's certainly work to be done. Um, but the the two pieces that I'm bringing to the table are one from the New Republic called Florida's GOP. Florida GOP's new anti-trans bill is so extreme it could ban treatment for breast cancer. Mm-hmm. And the other is from NPR and is called the anti-drag bills sweeping the U.S. are straight from history's playbook. Yep. Um, and so they both appear to be really great pieces. I'm sure we'll bring in other pieces to our discussion as well. But yeah. uh Again, I think I'm looking forward to talking about this issue, what's happening. Uh, As I said, it's very timely. It's happening right now. And it's something we all need to sort of wrap our heads around and understand um, what's happening and see what it is that we might be able to, to do about it. Yeah, definitely. Well, thanks for finding these two articles. I think it's important that we, we keep talking about this and um, bringing it up. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, So with that, we want to thank you for joining us today and for listening to Interdependent Study. You know what I'm going to ask you to do here, but in case you forgot, please follow, leave a rating, a review, share a podcast with the people in your life, follow us on social media, sign up for our email list to get notified about any new things we got going on behind the scenes. Absolutely. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, it's not about us, but it is about us. We'll talk to you next week. Next week.